This morning, we continue in our series, One Kingdom Indivisible. Uh, we're preaching this series along with more than 20 churches, many of them here in the Bay Area, uh, some, I believe, in Southern California, and even some over on uh, the East Coast. And the reason why we are participating in this series uh, is we want to reinforce that our citizenship in the kingdom of God is our primary mode of identification. And, and what I mean by that is that we are citizens of God's kingdom uh, before we are anything else. The unity we have as followers of Jesus is far deeper than any earthly alliance we could have. And, and so this is, this is kind of the, the point that we've been trying to uh, bring out and talk about throughout this time, that, that we are first and foremost, before anything else, citizens of the kingdom of God. And that, that affects how we live and how we treat one another and the kinds of things uh, that we stand for in this world. Now, our approach has been to trace the theme of the kingdom of God broadly throughout the scriptures. So we have looked at creation and exodus, exile and gospel. And in each of these chapters, we have seen how God desires unity both with and amongst his people. Now, last week we began discussing the church and there were a few key things that we covered. First of all, God has a vision for his church. He knows who he would like for us to be. And primarily, the most simple way to put that vision is that we would be his people and he would be our God. So this is one of the first things that sets the church apart. But the church is built on the foundation of Jesus. Jesus is the cornerstone that we are built on. Now, the cornerstone would set the course for the rest of the building. It was the first stone of the foundation that would be set. And wherever the cornerstone went, the rest of the building would follow. Jesus is the foundation that we are built on, the cornerstone that set the course for the entire building. And it's this foundation that sets us apart from any other institution or kingdom. And the reason why it sets us apart is because the kingdoms of this world have rejected Jesus as the cornerstone. They have chose to build their foundation upon something else. And so the very direction, the very foundation of our building is going to be different than any other kingdom of the earth. Because we are built on Jesus, we will be different than every other kingdom that can be formed. This difference manifests itself most clearly in the way that we treat one another, or rather I should say in the way that we are supposed to treat one another. I'm gonna fix my uh, notes here really quick. I'm getting really close, hold on. I just need to make them a little bit bigger. All right, there we go. Ah, it's better. <clears throat> because we are built on Jesus, we will be different from every other group. And this difference, this difference manifests itself in the way that we treat one another and the way that we treat others. So the basic principle that we've been talking about is that we are unified under Jesus. Jesus is the thing that draws all of us together and that helps us to stay on the same course. But unity, as we talked about, does not mean conformity. 
We are all different people who are not going to agree on every single thing. But Jesus unifies us and draws us together in spite of our differences. He is bigger than all the things that would drive us apart. And so as Peter instructed us, when we deal with one another, we need to not act like we should all think the same way or believe all of the exact same things about everything that should happen in the world or in our society. Instead, we are to show sympathy and compassion, to show humility, to love one another as we deal with all the things that come up. We have to pursue peace as Peter instructed us to do. Now, none of this is easy. Unity is not easy. It's a, it's a difficult thing for us to have. Uh, last week, I, I made a mistake in uh, my live sermon uh, to the people outside. I, I fixed it uh, when I was here live online. But I told you about a publication that posted different viewpoints on the coming election. And, and I gave the wrong title for one of the articles when I was outside last week. So the correct titles for the articles are Why Evangelical Christians Will Still Vote for Trump. And this was written on the side of someone who is pro-Trump to try to explain to everyone uh, the rationale behind um, their thinking and why they're voting for him. The other article was Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. And it referenced a... Uh, a, um, a document and, and, and movement that a lot of, well, pro-life evangelicals have signed and they're voting for Biden and explained their point of view. Now, the point I was trying to make by bringing these articles up last week is that within faith, there is room for people to hold different viewpoints on the same issue and still be devoted to God. And I commended this particular uh, website and publication just because I really appreciated that in both articles, they weren't trying to convince uh, anyone of anything. They weren't trying to say, this is why these people are wrong and this is why we're right. What it simply did was just give the ideas, lay them out, and allow people to respond to them as they would. So when I went back and uh, to read the articles, again, I saw that there was a new article from the editor. And in this article, the editor went ahead and tore apart everyone who uh, believed differently than he did and said that they surely couldn't understand God or couldn't understand the gospel. And I was really disappointed in that. I mean, number one, it was because my example was shot. <laughs> but secondly, I was really glad that there was somewhere that was facilitating just an open discussion without saying this is why these people are wrong or this is why you can't have it this way. But I think it illustrates for us how difficult it is to listen to one another, how difficult it is to have unity, and how there are certain things that challenge our unity more than others. Ideas or beliefs or things that we hold that are really important to us that sometimes get lost in translation. Nevertheless, we must be the kingdom of God to one another. We must show love, compassion, sympathy, and humility to one another if we are going to be the people that God wants us to be. And that is a challenge for us. But all of this and all that we talked about um, is really just the, the interior side of being the church. And as I said last week, we have to learn to get over ourselves if we are going to fulfill the other purposes of the church that God has for us because it's not all about us. It's not all about 
who we should be or what we want or what we think should happen. For the church is not just the kingdom of God to one another. The church is representing God's kingdom to the world. And as such, it has an incredible responsibility. And, and this is why we have to learn to model the kingdom amongst one another. I mean, after all, if, if we can't love one another, if we can't treat one another with love and respect, then how are we going to have positive conversations with people who don't believe in God at all, who don't know who God is? And this is, this is part of the weight. It's why we have to practice these things. We have to practice this compassion and love and, and understanding and humility. Because the kingdoms of the world will learn about who God is through what we do, through what we say, through how effectively we show them the love of God. And God has great expectations of us. He expects that we will take care of those who are in need. Now, this might raise the question for you, well, yeah, but like who? Which people? So I'm just going to cut to the chase if you're going to take notes on one thing today. This is the note. God expects us to take care of everyone. Everyone. No matter who they are, no matter where they come from, no matter whether they agree or disagree with you, God's expectation is that within his kingdom, his people will take care of all who are in need. We have seen this objective from the very beginning, that God intended for his people to be a blessing to the world. It came in the promise that God gave to Abraham, which we looked at way back uh, several weeks ago. So from Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 through 3, God says to Abraham, I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Did you see it there? God says, I am going to bless you. And this is the part that, that we're most familiar with. I mean, it's the part that we like. Being tied to God, being God's people, means that there are perks. There are things that you get from it. And so, yes, being God's people means that you will be blessed. But just as important as all of that is that God expects that as we are blessed, we will be a blessing. It's a striking statement that as the people of God, your role is not just to be blessed and to have a God-blessed life. Your role is to be blessed and then to become a blessing. Are you ready? To the whole earth. You will bless the world. Well, what does this look like? And how do we become a blessing to the world? And how is it different than anything else or any other place that can do good things for people? It's a good question. Well, when God formed Israel into a nation and gave them directions on how to be his people, 
he gave them very specific instructions on how they were to treat the people that were on the outside or in need. So from Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 14 through 22, this is a long passage and there's a lot in it. So if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up there. Deuteronomy 24, 14 through 22. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. Parents are not to be put to death for their children, nor children put to death for their parents. Each will die for their own sin. Glad we got that cleared up. Do not deprive the foreigner or the fatherless of justice or take the cloak of the widow as a pledge. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. This is why I command you to do this. When you are harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat the olives from your trees, do not go over the branches a second time. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you harvest the grapes in your vineyard, do not go over the vines again. Leave what remains for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow. Remember that you were slaves in Egypt. That is why I command you to do this. Now, there are several things in this passage that help us understand where God wants the heart of his people to be. Because... This is the key part of it. God wants the, the hearts of his people to be moved on behalf of those who are poor and needy. God expected his people to be a people of justice, that when they saw right or wrong, they would, or they saw wrong rather, they would act to do the right in those circumstances, to, to be people who would correct injustice wherever it may be found. And this manifests itself particularly in how they would treat the poor. Now, this verse starts out interestingly enough by saying the poor are not to be taken advantage of. Now, why would God feel it was necessary to say that the poor are not being taken advantage of? Well, I, for obvious reasons, it's easy to take advantage of the poor. Because someone was poor, uh, you could hire them to work for you, but maybe not pay them as much as you would uh, someone else because they needed the money and they would have to take whatever it is you would offer. Or even worse, maybe you would hold off on paying them because what, what could they really do about it? I mean, they'd have to wait for you to pay them. They need the money. And so God specifically commanded them not to do these things. Don't take advantage of the poor just because they need what you have. Instead, let the fact that this poor person you have hired needs the money encourage you to pay them on time and to pay them well, to not take advantage of them because they so desperately need what it is that you have. I mean, maybe they're going to use this to feed their families for that day, and maybe you paying them on time is going to allow their family to eat. But beyond not taking advantage of the poor, you were supposed to actively take care of them. 
Now, it's easy when we read these verses from this passage of Deuteronomy to make it seem like the leaving behind of things was sort of a passive act. Uh, if you miss a sheave, don't go beat the tree for a second time, you know, these sorts of things. But it's not that at all. This act of leaving things behind was supposed to be something that, that the people of God engaged in on purpose. So it included uh, leaving food behind in the fields and in the orchards and the vineyards so that those who were poor could come behind and gather the food to eat. They were to do these things on purpose so that other, so that other people who couldn't provide for themselves would be taken care of. Here's another example from Leviticus chapter 25, verses 35 through 38. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that they may continue to live among you. You must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. Now, again, they were to actively seek ways to feed and help support those who could not help themselves. And this included giving people loans at no interest, just giving them the money until they could pay you back. Uh, and it also included uh, not making a profit off of food. Like if you were selling food to someone who was poor, you would just simply cover the cost of the food and not make a profit off of them. Now, interesting question. Why is it that you do this? And the answer is because you fear the Lord. So understand this. God is able to look down on his people and see the injustice that is happening. And if God's people are not taking care of the poor, in fact, if they are looking to profit off of or take advantage of the poor, then God sees that this is wrong. It is the fear of God that is going to motivate you to not take advantage of others beyond just seeing their needs. So we see that God here is a God who recognizes those who are in need, that he sees what should be done to help them and that God expects his people to help take care of the poor. And in these laws and other like them, God made it clear that his people have a responsibility to take care of one another and to do so in an active way, to seek out ways to take care of those who needed help. Now, in general, uh, there were four groups that were mentioned as targets for help. In general, again, it was the poor, which covered you know, a lot of different groups of people, but there was also the widow, the orphan or the fatherless, and the foreigner or the stranger or alien. Now, each of these groups were mentioned because they have one important commonality, one thing that draws them all together, and that is this. They did not naturally have someone to take care of them. So the poor could not provide for themselves and they needed help to do so. The widow uh, wouldn't have a husband, obviously, and maybe would not have children and therefore would be left to take care of herself. The orphan wouldn't have parents or family and the foreigner uh, would not be from the people of God living in a foreign place. So they wouldn't have the connections, they wouldn't know how things work, so they would need help to assimilate and prosper. 
So in each of these cases, the people of God were expected to actively seek to help these people so that they could live a good life. Now let's take a moment to define good life. What, what God is trying to set up here is not this idea uh, like the American dream, for example, that you, if you work hard enough, you can have the life that you want. Rather, the good life that God is describing here is a life where you don't have to worry about your poverty, where you can feed your family, where you can have a place to live, where uh, you can be taken care of because you are a part of the people of God. Now, three of these categories are not really surprising categories. The poor, the widow, the orphans are groups that the church has often looked to help. We know we have food pantries, we've supported uh, orphanage, we take care of uh, the widows in our churches. It's, it's an, kind of a, a, an obvious thing that is easy for us to focus on. These are groups that our hearts open up to pretty easily. But this last category is important because I think it's one that really speaks to the heart of God and what he wants from his people. This category is the foreigner or the stranger. Now, I don't know if you caught this back in Leviticus chapter 25, but let me read this verse for you one more time. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and stranger so that they can continue to live among you. So get this, while on the surface it might seem like, well, of course you're going to help the orphan, of course you're going to help the widow, of course you're going to help the poor, God in this passage reverses the trend. So he says, you as the people of God are going to take such good care of the foreigner, of the stranger, of the alien, that you should model how you take care of the orphan and the widow of the poor on that behavior. That's crazy, right? But this tells us something. What does the inclusion of the foreigner or stranger tell us about the heart of God? Well, listen to these words from Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 14 through 19. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your ancestors and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer, for the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt." And from Leviticus chapter 19, verses 33 through 34. When a foreigner resides among you in your land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Now, what jumps out to you in these passages? The thing that really struck me is that God loves the foreigner residing amongst his people. Now, here's why this particular idea is such an interesting one. We have to remember that these instructions were given as God was turning 
Israel into a nation for the first time. And these laws were meant to set them apart, to make them holy, and to make them distinct. And we know that as the people go into the land of Canaan, that God is concerned about them being influenced by these other gods and religions and peoples. And so as they go into Canaan, they, they clear everything out so that these influences will be removed. And, and throughout the story, God shows that he was right to be concerned about those things. So within that context, it would be easy to assume that God cared more for his own people than he did for anyone else. And that assumption could then lead to the people of God showing prejudice and injustice to anyone who was not a part of the nation of Israel. After all, they are called out. They are God's people. But it's clear through these verses that that is actually not what God wanted. Yes, he wanted his people to be distinct and to be holy and to be completely his. But he also had very specific expectations for how his people would treat the foreigner that was living among them. God loves the foreigner and the stranger living among his people. He defends their cause and he helps to take care of them. And God expected his people to love the foreigner just as much as he loved them and to love the foreigner as they love themselves. What does this mean? And why would God feel so passionately about this? It's for this reason. The foreigner living in the kingdom of God, living amongst the people of God, will learn how great and mighty and awesome God is through the way that the people of God treat them. And so God's expectation is that as he loves these people, that we will love them too, and that as we love them, they will come to know him. But he knows that his people are going to need some help doing this. After all, this rise in sort of nationalism and pride and who they are and being the chosen people of God, it can be difficult for them to love the foreigner or the stranger in this way. But they were to have compassion on the foreigner because they were to remember that they were once foreigners living in a country that was not their own. They were once foreigners and slaves in Egypt, and God wanted them to dig into that identity, to remember what it felt like to be somewhere else where they did not belong. Because if they could dig into these feelings, they would not begrudgingly help the foreigner. Instead, their heart would be moved. They would remember what it was like, and they would offer to the foreigner what they didn't have before. They would have compassion and love just as God loves them. Now here's why this is so challenging. Let's unpack it a little bit more. Who is the foreigner? Well, the foreigner may not believe in God, for one thing. They may be of a different race, certainly of a different culture. And the foreigner may have even once been an enemy of some kind. But all of those things fall away in light of the fact 
that they are living in the kingdom of God amongst the people of God. And the people of God then will love and take care of them because this is what God does. What does this show all of us? What does this teach us? God gave us specific categories to pay attention to. The poor, the widow, the orphan, the foreigner. But really, all of those categories are not meant to pigeonhole us into certain things. What those categories, what those things tell us is that we are to take care of everyone. Because God loves everyone, and he wants more than anything else that anyone who experiences his people, his kingdom, will be taken care of and treated with love and compassion. This is what it means to be a part of his kingdom. This is the ethic that we live by, that it is not us against everyone else, but that the kingdom of God speaks up to anyone who comes into contact with with. It speaks up for them. It loves them. It cares for them. From Proverbs 31 verses 8 through 9. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. This is the heart of God and this is the beating heart of the kingdom. We cannot overlook helping those in need, no matter who they are, no matter if they believe in God or not, whether they agree with what you think or not, whether they're Republican or Democrat or Libertarian or Green Party or whatever, we are to bless the world because God has blessed us. And our primary concern, our eyes should be open to the vulnerable, who is being oppressed, whose rights are being violated, who doesn't have power or protection. How can we advocate for them? How can we speak up for the least of these? Because we can't get things confused and, and mixed up and turned around. Because we have an amazing story to tell. I have to be honest with you, I. I'm concerned about the story that is being told when it comes to the church and when it comes to Christianity. I am concerned because the story that I see most often is the story of what rights a Christian should have, what rights the church should have, how we are under attack, how we can't do this or that, or how if we vote this way, or how people want to abolish Christianity and faith, and how the church is speaking into all of these things and saying, this is what we deserve and this is what we want. And in the middle of all of this, the story that I am not hearing is that God loves the world. That God is not a God that shows favoritism or can be bribed. But that God loves all. After all, we were once foreigners and strangers apart from God. But miraculously, through the death of Jesus, Jesus, who had every right 
to be adored and worshipped and to put humanity under his feet, instead humbled himself, making himself nothing and going to the cross that we might have life with God. We were once foreigners and strangers. We were once apart from God. And now, as we have been reconciled to God, we take out the message to the world that they too can be reconciled to God. For this God loves them. We have an opportunity to reclaim the story of the church. And that story is not about what we should or shouldn't have. And don't misunderstand me. The church needs to speak into cultural movements. We need to speak up about things that are important. But if people are hearing from us, a story that doesn't include how much God loves them and wants to be in relationship with them, then we have missed something. And if groups of people hear that the church hates them, then we are misrepresenting God and we are not a part of his kingdom. Oh, church, who are we? What is the church? We are known, we are those who have known and experienced and drank deeply from the well of God's love. We have been saved from our sin through Jesus. We remember what it was like to be a foreigner, a stranger from God. And the story that we have to tell the world is that God loves us, that he offers us new life, and that God loves them and that he offers them new life. And that is a good story. And a story worth telling. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for making us your people. We thank you for all that you did to make that happen. God, it is not of our own doing that we are yours, but it is because you sent Jesus to this place that he humbled himself, that he died on the cross, that we might have life. Father, may our eyes be opened to all of those who have needs around us. To the poor, to the orphans, to the widows, to the foreigners, to the stranger, to the alien. And Father, I pray that when people experience the kingdom of God, they would leave that experience with a blessing. That they would know that as citizens of the kingdom, we are loved and that they would experience your love through us, that they would know that they are loved. May we be a blessing to the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.